to the What Makes a Great Trial Judge podcast. Part of the Lawyer Minds ecosystem. We've paired up with Lisa Blue, a practicing psychologist of 46 years and trial attorney of 44 years, to discuss some of the ways trial judges, especially those dealing with trauma-intensive cases, can improve their techniques and social practices, making the litigation experience more meaningful for jurors and litigants alike. So, how do you tell the difference between a great trial judge and one who needs to work on their social intelligence skills? Let's find out. We'll be interviewing some of the greatest trial judges around who offer tips for improvement and share their secrets. And with that, here's your host, Lisa Blue. Good afternoon, Judge Tanya Parker. How are you? Doing fantastic. Thank you. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. Judge Parker, as you know, this is uh, a podcast. It's called What Makes a Great Trial Judge. And I think every litigant in Dallas County that knows you, knows of you, has been in your court, thinks you deserve to be on this podcast because you have so much to teach. But before we get started about tips and, and what it takes to make a great trial judge, can you let us know a little bit about your background, where you were born, grew up, um, where you started before you became a judge? Sure. I was born in Chicago, Illinois, and moved to Dallas. Spent part of my childhood growing up up north and the other part of my childhood uh, growing up in Richardson, graduated from Richardson High School. And um, after law school at SMU, I started my practice with H. Ron White and Kevin B. Wiggins, two former judges, uh, uh, with Ron having been a former uh, state district judge and Kevin having been a former Court of Appeals um, justice. Both of them were appointed by Ann Richards when she was the governor. And so joining a firm with two gentlemen who had the background of, of being judges, I think was something that really stuck with me uh, because they just had a certain way that they were geared uh, to train us and it was all about training us so that we would be mindful all the time of what our presentation was going to look like in a court environment whether that was in an appellate setting or whether it was going to be in a trial setting whether it's going to be in front of a judge and jury or if it was just going to be in front of a judge but the training you know is very much that was the core of it how is this going to come across in a courtroom and uh, after spending seven and a half years um, with Ron and Kevin, including the time I clerked with them in law school, I went and joined uh, the firm with Michael Hurst. Um, and the firm was Gruber Hurst, Johansson and Hale. Michael and I got an opportunity to try a lot of cases together and uh, just became very bonded. And I had a wonderful ride there and was elected to the partnership at both of those firms. Uh, and the rest is history. Then I came over here in 2011. Did you always know you wanted to be a judge? I did not. You know, when I first joined the profession, as you know, the political winds blow. And uh, at the time that I joined, uh, all of the folks who were members of the judiciary at that time were affiliated with a party different than my own. And so I, um, I just put it out of my head that that would ever be an option because I wasn't willing uh, to switch in order to pursue that opportunity. But in 2006, uh, there was a sea change and that it became apparent to me that opportunity would open up. And so I started thinking about it. How long have you been a trial judge? This is my 13th year. Wow. Can't believe that. <laughs> and for the audience, it's only civil cases, correct? 
That's right. And uh, a district judge. Right. It is the, the jurisdiction of the court is very broad. Uh, so it makes for an interesting day because we can touch in any given day. I can touch things ranging from medical malpractice to employment cases to real estate disputes. Uh, so it makes for a very interesting job, intellectually rigorous, but also gives a lot of opportunities to interact with the public, uh, whether in jury trials or the witnesses who come to testify uh, and relate their experiences or their observations. Uh, so I, I still love it, uh, even though I'm endeavoring to do something different. Uh, next go around in terms of the election cycle, I still love being a trial judge. And I know, I think this is so cool. You're one of the first African-American LGBT judges that we are fortunate to have in our Dallas County, correct? Yes, that is true. I, in fact, I've heard it, uh, it's been reported that I am the only uh, openly Af uh, LGBTQ judge in the state of Texas, uh, African-American. And because of that, do you get, do you think it gives you more sensibility and uh, just an ability to be more thoughtful toward litigants that, you know, have all kind of life experiences? It certainly sensitizes me to making sure that everybody feels welcome, that everybody feels heard, that everybody feels seen, treated with respect. Uh, it, it makes me very sensitive to that because I walk around and, you know, one aspect of my identity or another often puts me in a position where I'm the only end or the other. And so when you walk around in this body where you spend much of your time being the only and or the other in almost all spaces in which you move, it does give you a level of sensitivity and compassion for people that you interact with. And I know having been a trial judge, um, I don't, the participants probably don't know that you were awarded uh, a very high uh, an award from the plaintiff and defense bar called the Aboda Trial Judge of the Year. What kind of uh, characteristics do you think got you there, got you to be popular and wanted, everybody wanted to be in your court? What do you think did that? Thank you for saying that. And uh, what I hope it is, what I think the, the polls reflect back to me and what people say when I'm moving around in different spaces is that they know that I'm going to be prepared for them and I'm going to be earnest and trying to find the, the right answer and really reading their materials, uh, not wasting their time and respecting uh, that this is their proceeding. This is their opportunity. And so I think it's the preparation uh, the earnestness when we get to a charge conference in a jury trial, uh, people know that I'm trying to properly charge the jury. I invite lawyers to kind of stand down for a minute, relax a little bit, move into a different space with me when we're in the charge conference, because I'm not here to allow overreaching in this document. I'm here to properly charge the jury on the law. And I always remind them that they want me to do that because the last thing they want is to get something they can't hold on to. Uh, because we've overreached in the charge or, um, you know, we've not accurately charged the jury on the law. So I, I think it's those sorts of uh, characteristics and traits. And, and also, I think people know that I love it. <laughs> people want to be in front of a judge who, you know, comes to work every day with the zeal and, and excitement for what they do. And they're showing up with an enthusiasm about our profession, about being a part of our democracy, about being a symbol of our civil justice system. I, I I have been told that that's palpable in this environment. I hope it's true. And I think that's really what people seem to be 
drawn to and appreciate about my service and the service of the members of my staff. We, you're known for having a great temperament. And I'm sure people in the audience and a lot of new judges will be watching this. They probably want to know when you know in your heart you have litigants that aren't very truthful or they're abusive in the way they practice. How do you keep your impartiality? I try to remember, you know, that our fidelity has to be to the law. And I try to encourage them uh, in those spaces when that's happening by suggesting to them that there's this higher thing that we are a part of and that what I'm asking of them in terms of, you know, trying to get un unearth the truth about what happened at a deposition or what, whatever the situation, but what I'm asking of them, I'm doing it in the name of that. And I think when we reach people that way, reach out to them that way and help them understand that it's not uh, to get after you, it's not to chastise you, it's not to demean you, it's not to, um, you know, highlight how you have perhaps stepped outside of the bounds of what was appropriate for the sake of doing that. But it really is so that we can all do our part to hold the post up to this thing that we call our civil justice system. And I just try to call people to that higher place. I try to walk in that higher place and then call people to that higher place. And for the most part, you know, when you throw the ball high, people jump for it and they feel a sense of um, sometimes embarrassment that they let their um, emotions get the best of them. And I just try to show people grace in that situation because we're all human and that's going to happen. And um, I do try to my very best to give people opportunities to self-reflect and try to course correct before we really have to get involved at another level. But unfortunately, not not everyone can do that. <laughs> so sometimes people, you know, don't we don't have any choice uh, but to participate and help and to correct course. Do you have any phrases? Because I know when people walk in your court and and I think it's your aura. I think people know you have high expectations of high, how people will act and how they'll present, but do you have any advice on phrases that you say to litigants or how you get people to really want to behave and want to meet your high expectations? There are a couple of things that I think are pretty routine here. One is that Often lawyers come in, especially at discovery hearings, and they'll say things, they're, they're almost apologizing that they're on the docket. They'll say things like, you know, sorry to take up the court's time, Your Honor, we won't be very long. And I always respond in those instances by saying, the time is yours, counsel. Just to let them know that I, there's nothing going on inside of me that um, despises uh, that, that they're on the docket or is displeased with if they follow the conference requirement and they've made their effort, then it's my turn uh, to try to help them to resolve their issue. And I'm delighted uh, to do it and honored to be able to do it. So I, I usually will say something to let folks know to just kind of put them at ease that I'm not rushing you off. Uh, I'm here to serve. Let's get into it. And then I take the bench by summarizing uh, the motion that is before the court. So I wanna let them know right from the start, the court is prepared, the court is read, we can zero in, we don't have to, you know, we've got a, a hearing that's a 30 minute block or 15 minute block, we really need to get right to it and the court's prepared to do that. I think that puts people at ease uh, when they know that the, the court has read their papers and is, is focused on what the issue is. 
Uh, sometimes I'll come with the case that's, you know, the seminal case that's involved. And when they see that, you can just see people light up because they feel like this is somebody who really cares about what we're doing. And they took the time uh, as we should. It's a job requirement, but, you know, they, they feel very grateful for it. So those are things that I do to start the proceeding, to put us further down the road than we otherwise would be if we had to start at ground zero. Your Honor, this case involves X, Y, and Z. Uh, I just put us out front by saying the court has before it this motion. The court understands the issues to be X, Y, and Z. Counsel, uh, you have the burden in regards to this motion. You may proceed. And once you've done that, it just you can just see the shift in them and they're ready to, to go. They know that I'm ready and they're ready too. Uh, and then ending proceedings, it's real simple. People always ask me, I'm gonna give my secret away. How do you get high bar poles? I, I end almost every proceeding by saying, counsel, have a good day. Oh, that's lovely. Um, just and people get caught off guard. That was particularly true when I first came. They would be looking around like, "Who is I talking to?" You know, I'm like, "I'm, I'm talking to you. Have a good weekend." And they just don't. People just didn't expect that when I first came that the judge is going to tell them to have a nice day or have a good weekend. Uh, sometimes I ask about people's kids. I know that you know their kids are growing up. Just as I've been here 13 years, some of them started off with kids that are you know now in college and when I got here uh, their kids were in elementary school so people appreciate that you take that time to ask about their families and see them as a human being not just as a lawyer after people are tried cases in your court do you have a process where you take everybody back in the chambers are there certain things that you say after the trial is over just to sort of bring things together, either feedback or something well, kind? That's a, a good question, because when I first started, uh, something that I did uh, every trial all the way up until COVID um, is I, at the end of a trial, I come off the bench, I go down and I shake each uh, juror's hand and thank them for their service. We send them letters also after that. But then I come around to the front and I go out to the lawyers and to their clients. And I shake each of their hands, I look them in the eye. And that was always an important thing for me to do because I felt like I know that that moment is going to come in the proceeding. And I want to feel satisfied within myself that when I'm shaking the person who prevailed and the person who was not successful, when I'm shaking their hands, I can feel that confidence on the inside of myself that I gave them everything. I, I gave them the very best that I had um, and that I was fair, you know, because I always felt like there's something that I'm going to feel on the inside if I wasn't that, if I was partial, if I showed any type of favoritism, it, it's going to feel a certain way when I shake that person's hand who was not successful. It's going to feel a certain way um, when I shake that person's hand who was successful and perhaps shouldn't have been. Um, and so, you know, if, if there's any sense within me that I put my finger on the thumb, or my, my thumb on the on the scale, I knew about myself that I would feel that and I would not like that. I would be internally convicted. And so I started that process so that I always know at the throughout the trial, this moment is coming. This moment is coming. You're going to go. You're going to get off of this thing that you're up high on and you're going to go down there and you're going to go walk over to them and you're going to be small and you're going to be humble and you're going to be on the other side and it, it's a moment where it's just really important to me how I feel when I do that. Um, and, and that lets me know, you know, I gave everything that I, I had to give. There have been a couple of times in 13 years um, where, you know, I'm a human. Sometimes I push myself 
And there have been times where I said, I, I wish you would have tried this case next week. Um, and, and, I, and I learned from that. And I said, you know, when the next time comes where I'm in a similar situation, we will try it the next week. We, we won't push ourselves uh, that way. Um, there, there have been times when that has happened. And, it's, and it, it may not be, you know, that I feel like some profound error was made, but it just may be that I feel like I, I, I gave too much or I was distracted or it just, it could be anything, you know, and it just, I don't like that feeling. So I had to learn from that. Um, you, you use those moments to be mindful the next time you're in that situation that what society teaches us about just pushing ourselves all the time is not, that's not the right way. Right. And there are times where everybody involved deserves for you to take a time out. What did you do to become so self-aware? My family helps me to stay very self-aware, my mother in particular. Um, she is, a you know, I, I get emotional when I talk about my mom. She's such a humble person. But I remember when I was young, I came in the house one day and I was saying to her, you know, how I was going to be great. I was a track athlete and I was talking about how I was going to be great. And she grabbed me and she said, I want you to want to be great for the purpose of doing the things that great people do, not not just to be great. And that stayed with me and over my life, you know, she's said different things like that. She's very good about pulling me to the side and just helping me to recenter and remember who I am, what she, she likes to say, I want you to remember who you are and whose you are. And that, you know, helps me. I have all sorts of uh, affirmations on the bench that reflect those things back to me. What's the most important thing your mother ever taught you as it relates to you being a great judge? When I graduated from law school, my mother, you know, she sort of felt like I don't have much to give a person who's graduating from law school. So she said, I, don't, I didn't know what to get you. So she wrote me a letter and the letter is framed and it's in my office. In the first line of the letter, she says, daughter, what I wish for you is I wish that you would feel what the hurt left out and lonely feel. And I think that um, her, that was her way to impart to me how important it is to have compassion, to walk with grace, um, to remember that every space you're in, somebody is carrying something really heavy that you don't know anything about. And I think that's the best lesson that she's given me. It makes me less sensitive to my own challenges and more sensitive to the challenges of other people. Oh, that's very touching. Um, it sounds like she's got very high social awareness. She does. Uh, she's a preschool teacher uh, for almost 40 years before she retired, right before COVID. Um, and that, that practice that I was talking about, uh, the last jury trial I had, I was able to resume that practice and we're finally getting out of the pandemic or emerging from it. And I had the comfort level, it just felt like the right case to resume that practice. And um, I, I was I was very full um, doing that, being able to go back down and shake the hands of jurors and go out to the lawyers and the parties in a really hard fought battle, a tough case, and, you know, be able to look them in the eye and shake their hand and say, you know, very best of luck to you, because I, I knew I had given everything that I had to give. That's lovely. Before we turn to life balance, because I know you have an, an amazing family you have the cutest child um 
before we do that, do you have any other phrases that you use with jurors? For example, when you have a jury panel and people don't want to serve and they're busy and they have very busy lives, what do you say to people to make them really want to be part of the system? I started during um, the pandemic when we started um, back having jury trials. And of course, there was a lot going on with regard to mask mandates and a lot of fear and, and different things that, that people were experiencing about coming over in a mixed social climate like a courthouse. And during that time, I started saying um, things to, to, to remind them that this is patriotism. Uh, your jury service, for, for many of us, this may be the only or the greatest act of patriotism that we will uh, display. Many of us will not be in the military. We will not be first responders. We, we will not be in positions where, as a matter of our jobs, we get to serve our country. But the, this is patriotism. And I that touches people deeply. I often get letters back from people saying they never thought of themselves as patriot. They never saw it that way. They never saw jury service as patriotism, but because I had said that to them, it was something they started to think about and it made them have a great sense of pride in what they were doing here. Uh, I always tell them it's my high honor to serve with them, with them making a decision about the facts and with me making uh, the calls about what the parameters are in terms of the law, that we will work together to bring closure to the dispute before the court. And when, when they hear that, we're working together in that way that they've got this important role and my role is important but i can't do anything without them i think it also heartens them uh, to really commit to the process and then we really just try to take care of them while they're here you know we we try to roll out the red carpet for them make sure that they're comfortable they've got everything that they need and i think that makes a difference but that the phrase about patriotism though is really i think the, the thing i would say that i implement the most is there anything special that you do for your juries just to make that added extra little, your very special thank you? We send the letters uh, afterwards, and I've been very surprised over the years, the number of jurors who write me back from having written them, uh, that they're surprised that they got a letter. Uh, we have gavel pencils and we have um, squeegees, stress relievers that are in the shape of gavels. And so we will do that. Uh, when I've got teachers, I always give them my contact information to invite them to reach out to me for career day or uh, if they're doing something on the, on the courts or government to come and speak to their classes. Uh, so, you know, we try to do a lot of things to help them feel like they had an encounter here that will serve them beyond this and that they'll take something away from it where I was encouraged them to go forward and be an ambassador of our jury system. And um, I think a lot of them do. Uh, I, I've had I've had a juror come back and tell me that uh, she gave birth to her child and named the child Parker. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. That's really lovely. I'm just curious, when you send out letters, do you write a little personal note? Sometimes I do, uh, because certain of them, you know, we will have had certain experiences. I send the letters to the entire veneer panel. So really an, an added note would go to the one of the 12 that actually got a chance to serve. Uh, but when I have an alternate and they had to go home, I always try to write something to them uh, because I know how tough that must be that they sat through the whole thing and, and then they had to go home at the end. Um, or I'll write something to tell them how the case turned out. 
um, and thank them for their service and remind them that even though they didn't get to deliberate, uh, they were an important part of it. So we do try to add a little bit at the end to just let people know we we saw you. I, I remember you, and um, it was a good experience for us to have you here. I, I the citizens are just remarkable. Uh, the the level of commitment that they have, uh, they they get it when we're trying to talk to them about these lofty platitudes that we are walking around talking about fairness and all this. They they get it and they understand that they've got to be very committed to giving people a fair and impartial trial, but equally important, and I emphasize this, it has to have the appearance of that. And so when we're going through all the rules, I try to point out, you know, this is why we have this rule about not talking to lawyers and them not talking to you. It's because of that appearance piece. Um, so th those are the sorts of things we uh, try to do with our jurors. I have a few more small sections, but before we move on to life balance, because I think you're so good in that area, um, I, I know this is a podcast about social and emotional intelligence, but especially for the new judges, because it just seems like to the litigant, like somebody like myself, that that you judges have very heavy dockets. You have a lot on your plate. And if you were talking to a group of brand new judges, would you have any thoughts about how they can get organized or do the best job they can with their with their docket? I think as a new judge, there's a lot of temptation to be on the bench all the time for the sake of being on the bench, kind of like um, new associates just sitting in their office having FaceTime because the partners are walking by. And I would just say resist the temptation to do that for the sake of doing that. Uh, really try to commit yourself to the work, uh, because if you commit yourself to the work, the rest of it takes care of itself. And the work, you know, some people's day in court is going to be your discovery hearing. That's going to be their day in court, because once you make the tough call there, they're going to resolve their case. Uh, some people's day in court is going to be the motion for summary judgment hearing. So you have to find a way to balance those things against the jury trials. Certainly, we want to make sure that people are getting access to their jury trials, and we have to be diligent and earnest about pushing those forward. But I also feel very strongly that you can't just cancel everything else on your docket because you're in trial. It's going to require you to be nimble. It's going to require you to do a lot of juggling. And these are the moments where you have to dig it out. When you're in a trial, you got to dig it out. Um, it's going to not be often that you're going to have to juggle to that level, but they're going to be four or five times a year where you're in trial on a big case. And you've also got 20 hearings on your docket for that week. And those people need their hearings. They've waited for them particularly now in this environment. And so we try everything that we can not to take them down, uh, but, to just juggle it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a um, adrenaline uh, junkie. So I get excited about like, can we do it? Can we do this today? Can we do it? Can we do it at the superlative level? All of it. Can we deliver in every one of these proceedings? And, you know, when I leave the bench at the end of the day and we've done it, uh, it's the best feeling in the world. Right. Before we move to that life balance, any thoughts about Zoom hearings, when they should be done, um, any instructions for the litigants, anything, how you use Zoom, anything for the judges that want some instruction about what a good use of Zoom is? 
for me, uh, Zoom is for parties, not lawyers. And so if I can use Zoom as a tool to make sure that a party has access to their proceeding, I'm happy to do that. Uh, in the context of trials and hearings, it's also to drop people in the courtroom where we can have a hybrid proceeding where we can reduce the cost of the proceeding by not having to fly an expert witness in for a Robinson uh, hearing or Dalbert Robinson hearing when that person can be dropped in on the Zoom and they can be put on as a witness without the party having to incur the plane ticket and all the out-of-pocket time of them having to come here. But I like lawyers in the courtroom as often as we can do that. Uh, this is an art and I think that the more you do it, the better you are at it. And I, I think that it's just a place where people have to continue to sharpen themselves. So my default is to have lawyers in the courtroom but of course it's also a tool when lawyers are sick when their kids are sick when their spouses are sick when their parents are sick and when we accommodate those things uh, so we we try to look at it more as a tool to reduce cost and expense and undue burden on parties and on lawyers and our default is that we really want to have the lawyers in the courtroom um, making their arguments to the court all right, wonderful. Let's turn quickly to um, life balance. No, no such thing. <laughs> uh, well, I remember I was so touched. You had a plan a while back that judges should work very hard for these days and then have a just a, a half a day or maybe a whole day just for themselves, for their own mental health or their own ability to have life balance. Can you talk a little bit about that for the judge audience? I, uh, some years ago, attended, or actually it was during COVID uh, in 2020, I attended an executive leadership program with the Stegen Institute. And it was so rewarding, but one of the things that I learned from that uh, um, executive leadership course is how important it is to time block and hold it inviolate. Like, this is, this is, this is the window. I will not be disturbed. Nothing can be scheduled during this time so that you can work on the work, right? You, you, you can set aside all these to-do lists and all these things, but you have to have time where you're organizing what you're going to tackle. And that's what that time block time is. I have to have time to just organize what I'm going to tackle before I can tackle it. And I would just encourage uh, judges to see that as a useful thing. Uh, look at the judges who have efficient dockets. Look at the tools that they're using and see that as a useful thing. It feels like it's not because you're thinking, oh, I could be having four hearings uh, during this time that I've time blocked. Uh, but I see it as if I have nothing under advisement, most, I mean, that's 95% of the time, I have nothing under advisement. If then, then I'm in a better position than if I heard a bunch of hearings that I couldn't decide because I didn't put myself in a position to be able to prepare. So I feel that lawyers, when you have the reputation that you're going to work hard for them and you're going to read, and when they get in front of you, they're going to get what they came for, which is a court order, because you will have been prepared, will have prepared for them. I think that if they have to wait an extra week to get in front of you so that they can get that court order, I think most lawyers are happy to do that rather than to go in front of you and not get that order for four weeks, five weeks, whatever else, because what good did it do? Yeah. Uh, so, so that's something I, I definitely um, 
encourages the time blocking so that you can organize what you are going to tackle. And I like to do that on Friday afternoons so I can really sit down and be thoughtful about what does the coming week look like and how, you know, are there things on the docket that are so voluminous that I wouldn't be able to read them in the evening while I'm juggling trial during the day. I should take those home with me this weekend. But if I don't time block on Friday, I wouldn't know that there's a 60 page motion for summary judgment that's next Thursday when I'm going to be finishing trial, probably trying to give the case to the jury. And am I going to be able to read a 60 page motion for summary judgment along with the briefing on probably seven or eight other cases that night after being in trial? It's just not likely. So if you take that time, you'll be able to get ahead of stuff and be able to be prepared. And I mean, it's a it is a wonderful thing to see lawyers come over and I sometimes just see their faces. They are just like, how is she doing this? Right. I just watched her finish trial right. and now she's turning around and going, counsel, I'm ready to call this case. Here's the motion before the court. Here's the issue. And it's just so rewarding, you know, because I didn't have to cancel their hearing. I got ready for it, but it's that time blocking that's so critical. When you do your time blocking, do you ever think about putting your hardest cases or your most complicated things first to work on? Do you have any thoughts about that? I absolutely believe the most difficult thing you have to do, you should do it the first of the day. First of the day, give that your attention and you just get that, uh, it's kind of like making your bed, right? You, you get that first accomplishment out of the way and then you're off to the races for the rest. So for me, it's I always want to tackle the most challenging thing that I'm facing for the day. I want that first. And sometimes I actually line it up that way. I'll have three things. All of them are challenging. And I'll say this one will be Tuesday morning. This will be Wednesday morning. This will be Thursday morning because they I mean, th th there's a lot of density. And so you can't sometimes you just can't tackle three complex things in the same day. Uh, so you just have to that that's why you need that planning session and that time to uh, try to organize how is this going to go so that every we end the week with everybody having their needs met. Is your life organized well enough so that when you block out your family time, you have a what a seven year old child, a boy, or six, six and a half, he would say. <laughs> right. Gorgeous, gorgeous. When you block out that family time, are you really good at keeping that? Or do you have just so much going on that you have to disappoint your your spouse, your child? Your no, I really, I feel that I have done um, a much better job since having a child of being able to hold that space sacred uh, because, and, and he's an only child. So, you know, I am his playmate. I am, you know, the person that he talks to. I mean, we are very, very close. We spent a lot of time together and I wouldn't have it any other way. He makes everything that was once big, small and things that were once small, big and walking through him is just a, I mean, it's just a wonderful life expansion to just move through the world with him. So I, I really, it's important to me to give him my attention. It is important to me to be present when we're together, uh, whether we're playing Nerf war or we're, we're jogging, you know, he's a runner. He likes to run as well. Um, or I'm at his flag football game or his piano recital, whatever it is, I'm locked in on what he's doing. Oh, that's wonderful. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's not, 
always easy uh, to do that. And when it, um, I try to give voice to that. When COVID was going on, uh, we noticed that he started stuttering. He had never been stuttering before. And when we took him to his pediatrician, the pediatrician said, I, I want to suggest to you because I understand that you're doing a lot of work at home and you're in and out of proceedings and then you pop in and you go see him, but you're knowing in the back of your head, you got to get back to something. He feels that. So she's told us that this is um, this stuttering. It's he doesn't have a speech impediment. He's just trying to get it all out real quick because, you know, you gotta, you're going to leave soon. And so she just encouraged to really be present. And then if he doesn't he's got to hurry up and get out what he needs to say i think this is going to go away and, and in fact exactly that's exactly what happened it went away wonderful as we close this down if you were in an audience full of judges and they said judge parker come up to this room of judges and just give us your best piece of advice in order to be a successful judge with high emotional and social intelligence what would your best advice be for the group? I think the best advice is just remembering that you set the tone. Um, that in every way, you know, one of the things when, when a witness is testifying and, and they're relating something that's very difficult, I am completely still. And I notice everybody else is too. Because I'm sending the message, don't move. Take this in, respect this person. This is really hard. And I've, I've not said a word. I just sent it just because I'm completely still. And so that I think judges um, should try to really appreciate how much, it's not power, but how much responsibility you have to our system, to the people who have these matters before the court, uh, to make sure the proceeding has dignity to make sure that the, the litigants, the litigants who have this matter before the court believe because it's true and because you are intentional about imparting it to them that they received a fair and impartial proceeding. And it's like being on a stage in the sense that you have to amplify that. If you want it to land on them out there, you have to go out of your way to be the demonstration of it. If you don't have intentionality behind being impartial, they're not going to feel like you are. Right. That's just bottom line. They're not going to feel it. Right. So just remembering that you set the tone and that intentionality with regard to the things that you want to impart, that you want people to come to know you as being, or you know, uh, the the way that you um, move through your service. Think about how can I amplify that how can i make that palpable in this environment and i spent a lot of time thinking about that is it important as judges no matter how many years you've been there to have mentors or other judges that you can bounce things off of is yeah no, no doubt about it i mean i 
have mentors outside of Dallas County. Uh, Judge Laura Livingston uh, down in Austin is someone that I've relied on over the years just to call her up and get her thoughts. Some of the former judges who were on the trial bench before I came that are out here in mediation practices and things like that. I reach out to them when I've got a tough situation and just want to get their insights about how to do it. But it's one of the things that I'm excited about in terms of going to the Court of Appeals, that collegiality, that opportunity to have bouncing ideas off of other judges, getting an insight into how they see it or how they would approach tackling an issue. Uh, I miss that collegiality from the practice of law, and I'm hopeful that one day I'll get an opportunity to return to it in that setting. Before I leave you, is there any, because you're so good at stories, do you have any kind of story that you could share either about past jurors or litigants that just really give us an example of your high social intelligence. <laughs> I don't know about and that. And if you but... don't remember, I'm going to tell you about the Lamar Kendrick story. But I want you to tell your story. Yeah. Whatever you think is your best. Yeah, no, I, that that's a good one, um, where we had a juror who was sitting uh, in the jury box, and he had an earbud in, and he was listening to music. And there was just this uh, murmur in the courtroom, and the lawyer who was examining the witness, who was on his feet close to the jury, he just kept looking around and I was just wondering what is he looking for what's going on and I'm up all the way over here so this juror was in the last seat in the jury box he's as far away from me as any of the jurors and he had it in the uh, side he had it on the ear that was away from me so I couldn't see it and uh, turns out he was listening to Kendrick Lamar while the trial was going on uh, he happened to be a Morehouse uh, graduate and I know a number of Morehouse men who are very proud of their affiliation with that institution. Every day he came, he had on a Morehouse t-shirt or sweatshirt or something. So when I took him in my chambers, that's what I, that's, that's where I went. <laughs> you know, I talked about historical figures uh, who have sacrificed much for us to have the opportunity to sit on juries, to vote, to be a part of this uh, democracy, who were all, uh, alum of his, alma mater. And I just said, you, I, I don't think you intend to dishonor them. And I don't think you intend to not really hold up as a beacon, this school that you come in here every day with a shirt on or sweatshirt. But, but you do understand that when you do that, it dishonors that institution. And it dishonors all those people who are affiliated with it that came before you. I understand this might not be the most interesting thing in the world. This is these people's trial, and it's their constitutional rights. And he was—he um, felt terrible, and he committed to turn that around, and he did. Um, and he was an alternate, so uh, he got to go. <laughs> he didn't have to deliberate, but he did turn it around, and he did a much better job committing to uh, the his service. But I, I wanted to reach him at that level because my he's a young uh, gentleman and I, my hope is that he'll get to serve many other times and the, the next time that he gets to serve that he'll remember that i love that story especially because to to show your kindness you also said well i like kendrick lamar too <laughs> but it's not a, an appropriate place to listen to it i that's, love that that's right so before we drop off is there any question i have not asked you that thinking about it, you'd, you'd say, oh, I think this would be a good thing to tell 
all of these judges listening? Well, you uh, know that I have erected uh, the words in my courtroom above the bench, uh, we who labor here seek only the truth. And I would encourage judges to think about what their own phrase is. What is the sentiment? What is the message that they want to send, to transmit to everybody who walks in the room? When I saw that phrase in a bar journal many years ago, I said, I have to have it uh, because it conveyed everything that I want to impart in this space. The use of the term we suggests that all of us here have work to do, a job to do. It's important. It's not just me. It's not just the jury. It's not just the lawyers, but we all have labor work to do here and that ultimately what we're after is the truth and i felt like that would be something that uh, would remind all of us would sober us to the reality of what we are participating in what is at stake um, this is not a game and while it's adversarial it is not intended to be contentious and so um, i would encourage judges to look for Great. something they maybe could put in their courtroom and um, send a message to people who walk in that this is what we're about here. And it sets the tone too. I love that. It does. So my it, last question, when you're gone and somebody stands up to give your eulogy and you were able to write those three first three sentences of your eulogy, what would you want people to say about you? I would want people to say that I had a servant's heart um, I took care of the people uh, that God entrusted to me in whatever capacity, whether they were my family members or they were jurors or lawyers, who, whoever, if God entrusted them to me for whatever period of time that I took care of them. Uh, I would, I definitely hope that people would say that I was earnest and I worked hard to let people know what I thought about them, um, what I felt towards them. That's really important to me because I am where I am in my life right now because of so many people who took the time to just say to me, you ever thought about being a lawyer? You ever thought about being a judge? And just because of who they were when they said it, it stayed with me and changed the trajectory of my life. So I'm real, it's really important to me that I live my life in a way that I hope um, I, I'm walking around letting people know this is what I see in you and inspiring them to realize their potential and ho hopefully you know there are many people who would look back on their lives and say that tanya parker touched it in some type of way that's significant to them not me but significant to them and uh, that's that's what i hope that was just wonderful and i i know you have helped so many people that are watching this and I just, I love getting to know you better. So thank you for taking the time to share. Thank you. That concludes this episode of What Makes a Great Trial Judge, part of the Lawyer Minds ecosystem. We hope you'll take some of these trial tips and incorporate them in your everyday practice to improve the litigation process for everyone involved. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and take some time to explore the other content Lawyer Minds has to offer. Your feedback and ideas are always welcome. Thanks for listening and see you next time.